If there's one thing we've learned thus far on our tour of the Old Testament is exactly what I mentioned before, where God is heard and trusted and obeyed, humanity flourishes. Individuals flourish, families flourish, nations flourish. And that shouldn't surprise us. And yet it is surprising in the fact that so many choose not to listen to God or His Word or trust that the blessed life the Bible talks about is to be found in relationship with God, humility, submitting to His kingship, His leadership, submitting to His Word. Certainly we understand our own country flourished because this was at our foundation, but at some point, the spiritual capital is spent. And I think that's where we find ourselves today. It wasn't that suddenly in the last year or two people stopped listening to God. That happened a long time ago. But that spiritual capital in the bank from from decades and decades of Trusting in God's Word, that spiritual capital has been spent. And so now we're seeing kind of that book of Judges effect, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. But these are exciting times. Not exciting in the sense of what happens when the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Exciting in the sense that we will now have, as believers, a true platform for preaching the gospel. No more pretending to be a Christian. It's not going to get you anything but trouble to pretend to be a Christian. So pretenders will stop pretending. And I believe, because history teaches us, that as society goes down in flames true Christianity rises out of the ashes and becomes a a beacon, right? A a lighthouse, uh, a pleasing aroma. It it attracts people to the Savior. And so if we will continue to worship God, teach His Word, obey His Word, proclaim His Word, live His Word... We will fulfill the Great Commission. It's not, well, look at me and how great my family is. In a prideful sense, it's a humble... Now, there's a different way to live. And the world will take notice. Not that those are perfect people, but they're happy people. They have peace, a peace that passes all human understanding. There's a humility there. There's a hope that's not seen anywhere else. This is the kind of people God's turning us into by His Spirit and His Word. We've seen from God's Word that God has always existed as three persons. One God, three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They perfectly communicate to one another for all eternity Perfect harmony, the Son submitting to the Father, the Spirit submitting to the Father and the Son. 
Even though there's submission, there's no inferiority. They're all fully God. This love between them, God desired to display His glory, creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The entire universe, even our own scientists are discovering, has to be the way it is to support life on this solitary planet. Billions and billions and billions and billions of planets out there, and we thought maybe ours wasn't so special, but we're coming to find out that our planet is very special. That the conditions it takes to support life are very fragile. Our universe is fine-tuned, so to speak, to support life on this planet. God created human life in His image that we would be in relationship with Him, that we would glorify Him, that we would be satisfied and filled by His glory and His love. And yet, immediately, the first human beings rebel. They want this glory for themselves. They want to define reality on their own terms. They want to define right and wrong. They want to chart their own path. And so God launches this rescue plan of redemption after cursing the planet and we all understand the curse we live under it life is hard down here there's sickness and disease and a lot of times our work feels frustrating and exasperating we clean things they become dirty we fix things they become broken We take a vacation and feel rested, and a day later we need another vacation. And in Genesis 3.15, God promises that by the woman's seed, a Redeemer would come. He would crush Satan's head, and Satan would merely bruise his heel. And so we see God works through individuals. He works through individuals. Through one man, Adam, sin came into the world, but through one man, Jesus Christ, salvation came. God called a man, an individual, Abraham, to be a father of a nation because God also works through nations. He works through individuals. He works through nations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, eventually the nation Israel. And he set a king over Israel because Israel rejected God as their king. So God gave them a human king, Saul. And the people experienced the foolishness of wanting a human king. So God then replaces Saul with a king after his own heart, David. A type of Christ, but not the Christ. Yes, he's in the line. He's in the line of the seed, But he's not the seed. He's not the king. And as wonderful as David's reign was, we understand it near the end of his reign, he commits a horrendous transgression, adultery, murder, lying to the people about it. And so he's not the seed, but from his line God promises the seed will come. And we've been looking at Israel's kings Is this king the seed? No. Is this the one? No. How about this one? Oh, he's pretty good for a while. No. 
fact, it becomes a broken record as we look through the history of Israel's kings. And so and so did what was evil in sight of the Lord. And so and so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so and so did even more evil than his father did. And we learn through this not to place our hopes in human kings and leaders. Eight years ago, it was all about hope and change. Where's the hope and the change? And yet we go through the cycle again, and maybe this season it'll be different. Beloved, beloved, what is God teaching us from the Bible? True hope and change comes through the person of Jesus Christ, and where His Word reigns, there's the hope and change. There's where society flourishes. So let His Word reign in your heart as an individual. Let it reign in your family. Let it reign anywhere God has given you delegated authority. Let it reign in our church. Let it reign in our city. Never let God's Word be silenced. Don't compromise with the world. God speaks and He calls us to speak His Word. When we get to the book of Psalms, uh, God's inspired song book, we call it the Psalter, 150 Psalms, the first two Psalms introduce the theme of the entire Psalter. Psalm 1 focuses in on individuals. Psalm 2 focuses in on nations. We sing praises to God as individuals. We sing praises to God corporately. Do we not? I hope you sing as an individual. The Bible commands us to sing hymn songs and spiritual psalms to one another. So let's go to Psalm 1. I'll briefly go through Psalm 1, but Psalm 2 is where we're going to spend most of our time. In Psalm 1, God lays out for us two paths for individuals. Only two paths. There's only two paths. All this nonsense about all paths leading to God. There's only one path that leads to God. And the other path leads far away from God. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, There's two gates, a narrow one and a broad one. The narrow one leads to heaven, the broad one leads to destruction. There's two trees, one bears good fruit, one bears rotten fruit. There's two houses, one stands in the storm, one crashes in the storm. Two paths for individuals. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There's your two paths already. One path is filled with wicked, sinful scoffers. The other path is the path of the blessed man, the happy man, blessed by God, pleasing to God. What does that path look like? The path of the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Lord, all caps, Yahweh. Yahweh God, the covenant God. 
the true God, the living God, the God who speaks. And in His law, He meditates day and night. I put in His law in big font. It's not just that He meditates day and night. What does He meditate on? In His law. There's this resurgence of meditation in our culture. We're such a busy, busy, busy people with all of our gadgets and gizmos and constant news and Fox News and CNN and Facebook and ad nauseum, ad nauseum, ad nauseum. And so there's this movement to be quiet, be still. That sounds like biblical language. Be still and know that I am God. That is biblical language. But it's not be still for the sake of being still. Eastern transcendental meditation is about emptying your mind and focusing on a singular thing that's not God. It's trying to, through intense focus, eliminating self and reality. The ultimate goal of the Eastern religions is to become like a drop in the ocean. You just disappear into reality. And meditation is supposed to be a way to help you down that path. This is of the devil. Don't buy it for a second. It is not what God means by meditation. The word in the Hebrew means to turn over a thought in your mind over and over again. To ruminate like a cow chews the cud to get every last bit of nutrition out of it. What are we to chew on all day? God's Word. Think about it. Study it. What does it mean? How do I apply it? How is this relevant? What does God tell me about Himself? What does God tell me about me? Ooh, not not so good. What is God's solution to my problem? What does God want me to do with this life? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not the emptying of your mind. So, many of our Public schools are now requiring yoga and meditation in the morning. Right? But there's a separation of church and state. Well, only some churches. It is a religion. There's a movement in Christianity. It's an old movement, but old heresies always come back under new names. It's the quietist movement. The quietist movement taught that you are working too hard to be sanctified. You're working too hard. Now, anyone who's working hard to be justified in Christ needs to stop and receive the free gift of Jesus Christ through faith. But in our sanctification, God expects us to work hard. The Puritans said... Pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on you. Well, what percentage is God and what percentage is me? The Bible doesn't talk about percentages. 
You work hard and you give God all the credit. And when you stumble, take all the blame. Is that fair? In God's economy, that's fair. That's how it works. So work, work hard. The quietest movement coined the term let go and let God. I know that is a popular phrase in Christianity, and we've all probably said it. And if you mean by let go and let God, I need to let go of trying to earn my salvation. By all means, let go. It's offensive to God to try to pay Him back for His free gift. If you give me a gift Tuesday for my birthday... Oh, that was a shameless plug for a birthday present, huh? (laughs) I was trying to grab the words as they were coming out, but it's too late. No gifts! But... If you happen to give me a gift, and I reached out my wallet and said, let me pay you back because I don't want to owe you any favor. How rude, how insulting. Jesus paid for our salvation with his life. Jesus is the most precious thing to the Father, and he gave his Son for us. So let go of trying to earn your salvation and let God do it. He already has. But if by let go and let God you mean let go of obedience, let go of discipline, let go of praying fervently, let go of fulfilling a great commission, no, don't let go of those things. Those things God has given to us as commandments and for our own blessing. I know we're all very busy in this this message of quietism sounds enticing. But you ought to unplug from the things that don't feed your soul and plug in to that which will nourish your soul. Eastern quietism and even this quietist movement in evangelicalism just says unplug, period, and they stop there. I don't even know how you do that. How do you stop thinking? Psalm 1 goes on to lay out for us not only two paths for individuals, but the two results. Where does one path lead? Where does the other path lead? The path of righteousness, he uses this metaphor, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. There's the fruit. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The plant metaphor reminds us that it is God that is producing the spiritual fruit in us. But then he goes on to say, and whatever he does, because there is something that we must do, it prospers. If you're rooted and grounded in the Scriptures, because the Scriptures will determine the things that you are doing, and God will prosper those things. The wicked are not so. It's amazing he spends the poet, and we believe it's David, all these lines describing the tree planted by the water and yielding its fruit, and its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does is prospers, then he turns around and he says, not so for the wicked. It's abrupt. 
They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. They would throw the wheat harvest up into the air and the wind would blow away the chaff and the heavy kernel would fall to the ground, the part that you want to keep. The wicked, because they are not being fed on the word of God, are malnourished. They have no character. There's no heaviness to their character. And the winds of God's judgment blows them away like so much chaff. They're tossed to and fro, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, by every wind of doctrine. They flip-flop and change their mind on everything. Sound familiar in the news lately? Very few candidates seem firmly rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Finally, the psalm concludes... For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Individuals then are separated both ethically and judiciously. They're they're separated by their behavior, their ethical behavior. Those who practice righteousness, those who practice lawlessness. And because of that, then they're also separated judicially. God declaring judgment on the unrighteous in favor and blessing on the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Knows. That is a deep theological Old Testament word so pregnant with meaning far more than what we associate with the word knows. Just, you don't get very long in Genesis before you read and Adam knew his wife. That's very intimate. And they bore a child. And Cain knew his wife. Sorry. No, and Adam knew his wife and they had Cain and Abel. This is the way that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's intimately involved and acquainted with the way of the righteous. Why? Because the way of the righteous is God's way. God knows this way because it's His way. It was His way always from eternity past. So when we choose to live according to the Word of God, God knows that way. And it takes union with God for us to live that way. We must intimately know Him. But the way of the wicked will perish. God doesn't know that way. It's not that there's anything that God doesn't know, but He doesn't has never lived that way. He has never thought that way. It is foreign to God, the way of the wicked. And so they will perish. Jerry Bridges died last week. Great, great gift to the church. Wrote Pursuit of Holiness and others that are really bread and butter books for discipleship and counseling. He was speaking about people who call themselves Christians but don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They don't hunger and thirst for holiness. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He talks about the people who say, I love Jesus, but I don't really love singing doctrinally rich songs about him and hanging out with his people 
and studying His Word and sitting under biblical preaching, confessing my sins, mortifying my flesh, and fulfilling the Great Commission. Other than that, though, I really love Jesus. What do these people think they're going to be doing in heaven? I mean, we won't have to mortify the flesh anymore or fulfill the Great Commission. But singing praises to Jesus and fellowshipping with His people, worshiping Him, sitting under great preaching, Jesus said, At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And others say, but we prophesied in your name, and we did all these things in your name. And he responds, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We understand now this side of the cross that when Jesus says, He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus who did the will of the Father perfectly and through faith in Him we can have that designation as well. Jesus perfectly did the will of the Father for us because we couldn't do it. And now through faith in Him knowing our sins are forgiven and we're justified and a place is being prepared for us in heaven, we can work hard in our sanctification to be known as the people who do the will of the Father and do not practice lawlessness. We move into Psalm 2. Theologians believe Psalm 1 and 2 are supposed to be read together as one literary unit. In fact, it should just be all one psalm. Together they announce the great overarching theme of the book of Psalms. Most people don't think of Psalms as a book. It's a book, and each psalm is like a chapter in the book. It's, It's one big literary unit. Psalm 1, 1 begins with the blessed man and Psalm 2 ends in verse 12 with the blessed man. That's a poetic device called an inclusio. They're literary bookends. It tells us that the whole unit goes together. And it draws our attention to what's in between the two bookends. If the bookends talk about the blessed or happy man, then what's in between the bookends must tell us how to be the blessed, happy man or woman or child. Though not specifically stated, we're we're fairly certain that David is the author. But I want to remind us this morning that the Bible has dual authorship. There's a human author and a divine author. God has spoken directly to men, spoke to Moses face to face. He's spoken through a burning bush. He's spoken through a cloud and a pillar of fire. He's spoken through the angel of the Lord. He's spoken through dreams. He's written on stone tablets with his own finger. 
He's written on a wall in the book of Daniel. God communicates. He speaks in all kinds of ways. The book of Hebrews tells us that in these last days, He has spoken most clearly and directly through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. But statistically speaking, the most common way God speaks to us is through human writers. The doctrine of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 For all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. Not inspired like, wow, I was thinking about God today and I wrote a poem. And now it's inscripturated. No. Inspired... The word in the Greek is God-breathed. God-breathed. In a miracle that we'll never fully comprehend, God in His sovereignty and in His power decided who the authors of Scripture would be, gave them the DNA He wanted them to have. They were born into the family He wanted them born in. They experienced things in life that He wanted them to experience. He put them in situations in history so that at the moment they wrote Scripture, what came out of their human heads, inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit, was exactly what God wanted to communicate to us without error which is a lot more amazing than just a finished book falling out of the sky, which is what the world says. Now, if that happened, I would believe God. But the Word made flesh did come, and they killed Him. Dual authorship. Which means, when we read our Bibles, we must first determine what it is that the human author, inspired by God, was talking about in that day, in that situation, in that context, in that setting. But we also realize, because it's divinely inspired, it may be talking about things that the human author didn't realize. It's not talking less than what the human author meant, But sometimes there's more going on. And in the case of Psalm 2, we're going to see that David wrote this song, this psalm, talking about his inauguration as the king of Israel. But later, the New Testament writers would assure us that this psalm is a messianic psalm. It's talking about the king of kings. The psalm is broken up into four scenes, as as you will. Four scenes, four parts, each part three verses. It's in Hebrew parallel, in a chiastic structure, meaning it goes A, B, B, A. A, B, B, A. A is what the nations are saying about God. B is what God says back to the nations. The third section is what God's king has to say. And the fourth section is then the world's response. So it goes, nations, God, God, nations. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme like English poetry. 
They have other literary devices that make it poetry. So, scene one, the nations rebel. I'm going to read in the ESV this morning. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I've underlined the word plot. It is the same Hebrew verb used in Psalm 1 for meditate. You wouldn't catch that in your English Bible. The righteous man turns over God's word in his mind over and over. It's like an it's an audible speech. The this the essence of this Hebrew word is more of an audible a murmuring to to oneself, speaking the word of God over and over to yourself. You ever talk to yourself? Speak the word of God to yourself. I catch myself talking to myself, usually to correct myself. Oh, Brent Whitney, really? Do you think God's pleased with that right now? And sometimes my kids will hear me from a distance. I don't know if they know what I'm saying. I think Jennifer does it too sometimes. Probably the older you get and the more children you raise, the more you talk to yourself. Yeah? Okay, it's not just me. Okay. But in, in, in this case, the nations are murmuring over and over and over again, plotting vain things. Vain meaning they're never going to come to pass. And what kinds of things are they plotting? Let us burst the God's bonds and cast away their cords from us. This, this word is taking away our freedom the nations say. It's a hindrance. It's in my way. We must eliminate it from the public square. Right? The culture we're living in. We're supposed to be big on the First Amendment, freedom of speech, but not that speech. Interesting that it's the same, same verb that David would use. The nations, the rulers, the kings of the nations take counsel together. You know, the rulers of nations don't come together and agree on anything except one thing. We don't want God. After that, all bets are off and they go to war with one another, conniving and lying and plotting and making treaties that they're only going to break. One thing they agree on, we do not want God's word controlling our lives. And so they're plotting to somehow escape from God's authority and from his word. Scene two, God responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Again, the... Part of the poetic theme that runs through the psalm is speech. 
All these are verbs for speaking and making audible noises. The, the nations, they speak. They murmur. They plot vain things. They scoff. But God speaks, and he laughs at all of their plotting. Ha! Really? Really? Come now. You really think you can contend with the Almighty? Look where he's sitting. In the heavens, high and lifted up, enthroned, far above all human earthly authority. Men come and go, they're like a vapor, but God is eternal. All men are like grass, and their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We've got few more weeks of green out there. And then like man's glory, it will wither and turn golden. <laughs> I underlined holds them in derision. This is literally means stammering in the face of someone to ridicule. God mocking them by copying their words, but in a pejorative, mocking tone. Blah, 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 Yada, yada, yada. Whatever. This is like the sanctified version of our sarcasm when we know somebody's speaking absurdity. Whatever. What is this gibberish? What is this nonsense? Then he will speak, and now here's the word for audible, intelligible speech. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. No more joking around now. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy. They're all plotting who's the king. I've already set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Remember, in, in the near fulfillment, this is King David writing, but in the far fulfillment, this is King Jesus. All the nation scrambling to appoint leaders. Sickened me the other day. I'm reading that Putin in Russia has started a prop, propaganda campaign to elevate the memory of Stalin great leader and the kind of leadership we need. And it's working. A recent survey of Russian teenagers, the majority see Stalin in a favorable light and just the kind of man that Russia needs to be great again. And when asked what about all the people he killed, they put the number in the thousands. And they were, they were criminals anyways. They deserved death. Conservative estimates put the murders at 15 million of his own people. But it's probably closer to 40 or 50 million. We wonder about how could a Bernie Sanders gain so much traction in our own country? And you ask the youth today about socialism. What evil? Stop pe teaching people history and that's what you get. 
Well, he's going to make everything fair. This is what life boils down to for people who don't read the Word of God and trust in the Word of God. That's not fair. Somebody make it fair. Beloved, you don't want fairness. You want fairness? We're all going to hell together. That's what's fair. What's not fair is the perfect one dying on the cross, the sinless one. Praise God that He's not fair in that sense. But He is just. Teach your children to love justice, not fairness. Those words shouldn't even be allowed in your house. It's not fair. You want to yell at your kids? Don't, but if there's one time you should. Oh, we will never hear that phrase in our house again. Is that understood? Psalm 2, scene 3, God reigns. The, the speaker now transitions to God's king, his appointed king, his anointed one. And again, in the near sense, it's David, but in the far sense, it's Christ. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It was believed that the king of Israel, because Israel is God's people, the king represented God as God's vice-regent. And this makes sense to us because that was our role in the garden. Adam's role was to be God's vice-regent, to have dominion over the earth as God's delegated authority here on heaven. And that is still our call as His people, to have dominion. The problem was man said, I want the dominion without answering to God. I don't want to be vice-regent. That's how Satan fell. A glorious angel of light, more beautiful than all the other angels, but I don't want to sh share glory with God. Why can't I be the king? Because there's only room for one king. It's, there's only one top dog, only one head cheese, only one you fill in the blank with whatever saying. We co-reign with Christ, but we're not equal to Christ. And so on the day of his inauguration, David can rightfully say that God said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Because the son has the authority of the father. As David went, so went the kingdom of Israel. When we apply that to Jesus Christ, Paul teaches us in Acts 13.33 that this messianic psalm refers to Jesus being begotten out of the grave as the firstborn from the dead. Begotten speaks of giving birth. Obviously, Jesus wasn't begotten by God in the sense that there was a time Jesus wasn't and then God created him. Nor does it mean that there was a time Jesus wasn't the Son of God and then He became the Son of God. No. It's begotten in the sense that when He took on human flesh, yes, He was begotten in that sense, but when He came from the grave, the tomb was the womb, so to speak, and gave birth to the firstborn from the dead. 
Paul says in that sense, Psalm 2 applies to Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Yes, Jesus has always reigned, but in a sense, it's when he was resurrected that his reign began. Because now he can reign in our hearts directly through faith in the resurrected Christ. I hope that makes sense to you. He's always reigned, but he reigns in a new way when he was resurrected from the dead. All those who put their faith in him, he now puts the law in our heart and gives us the power to want to obey the law. He's reigning in our hearts now. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. We are Christ's inheritance. Do you realize in what sense you're a gift? Now let's be careful here. It's not that we're all so wonderful that we're this great gift to Jesus. God the Father gave humanity to Jesus to worship Jesus as a gift. Jesus died on the cross to redeem humanity and is purifying his bride and at the wedding feast of the Lamb, he'll present the bride back to the Father. We are a love gift between the Father and the Son. When we come to the Bible and we start with ourselves, we get caught into all kinds of man-centered mistakes and heresies. But when you come to the Bible and say, first and foremost, the Bible is about God, we realize that you and I, beloved, in one sense are quite inconsequential to what's going on in the heavenlies. Stuff's been going on for all eternity that's way beyond us. And yet, in a very real sense, we are part of it in a real way. We're a gift the Father to the Son, and the Son back to the Father. And you view your life in that way, what, what kind of change would that make in your life and your perspective? It's not about me and, and God giving me the things I want and making all my problems go away. It's about me getting to be a gift. A gift of worship. In our sanctification, we are we are motivated to be the best gift we could possibly be in that sense. That's exciting. We're going to go out on my birthday. I know my wife's going to, she's going to look her best and she's going to do her hair just the way I like it and wear the outfit I like. And the kids will go, why are you wearing that outfit? Because your father likes this one. It's not about her. It's about her being a gift to, to me. And oh, what a gift. Find out what Jesus likes. And find out what the Father likes and be like that. How's that for a goal in life? The Father loves the Son because He submits to the Father perfectly. Be like the Son. I just want to be me. Be like you in the sense that God made you unique than anyone else. But don't run with that out of pride. 
Say, well, this is me. Take it or leave it. No. Become like Christ. This is when society flourishes, when everyone's becoming like Christ. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I've underlined the word rod because that is the same word in the Hebrew for the shepherd's staff and the potentate scepter. The shepherd and the king go together biblically. Jesus is the good shepherd, but he's also the king. And this sets up the final scene. This reminds us that our relationship to God can either be one where we feel the loving discipline of the shepherd's staff, or if we're going to be rebellious and want to be our own king, then we'll experience the rod of iron as the king's scepter and he will smite us and shatter us like the pieces of a potter's vessel. Again, we're down to these two choices in life, two paths. Continue to try to be your own king or bow the knee to the true king. Either way, at the end of the age, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. Heard one preacher this week at Shepherd's Conference say, For the elect, we will bow the knee face to face and we will confess face to face Jesus is Lord. For others who continue in their rebellion, they will be bowing the knee and confessing in another place. Not in glory, but in everlasting suffering. But every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. So the final scene, how will the nations respond? What's interesting here is that the psalm leaves us hanging. We don't get words here in the Hebrew that talk about speaking. There's an invitation, but we don't hear the response. It places the question squarely in our own laps. We must answer the question, how will we respond? For Israel, how will they respond as a nation? For us, how will we respond as the church, as the people of God? Not that the church has replaced Israel. Stop thinking patriotically and think eschatologically. The church, we're the people of God. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. How will we respond to God's word? Now, therefore, O kings, we're going to get five commands. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry. Your New American Standard says, do homage to the sun. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish 
in the way. When a conquered king was brought into the court of the conquering king, he would have to bow at the throne and kiss the feet and beg for mercy. And often the conquering king would place his boot on the back of the king's neck. Very vulnerable position. Position of abject humility, exposing your neck to the sword and authority of the conquering king. I know you can take my head off at any moment. I vow complete allegiance to this throne. That's what's meant by kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Before we see Jesus high and lifted up on his throne in heaven, the first throne we meet him in in this life is this throne here. Different than all other kings. He's high and lifted up on the cross. And yet we still come and kiss the sun. We bow the knee. We expose our necks saying, I realize my life is in your hands. Have your way with me. The psalm ends this way, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In the great, one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith, we take refuge from God in God. We take refuge from God in God. God's wrath is being revealed against all mankind, against the unrighteousness of suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Where do you escape God's wrath from? The only one who could protect you is God, but it's His wrath you're trying to escape. Where do you go to escape God's wrath? To God. We take refuge from God's wrath in God's mercy. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Wait a minute, I thought we should be trembling and fearful of His wrath. Yes, you should. But through faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that He's paid the penalty for our sin, 1 John tells us perfect love casts out all fear. We can fear God reverentially as our Father, but we no longer need to fear His wrath. David, who wrote these words, would later understand more fully what he was inspired to write because he sinned in a big way and wrote Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. Amen. Must be time to go because my voice is gone. (laughs) Father, may we all run to you for refuge from your wrath. May we run to the cross and kiss the sun before it's too late. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.